0: We'll turn with me now in your Bibles to First Peter, chapter two. I'm going to read briefly from First Peter chapter two, verses four through ten, and then our sermon passage is from Psalm 115. But before we go over to Psalm 115, let's begin with First Peter chapter two verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scriptures Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy. But now have obtained mercy. Beloved. I beg you. As sojourners and pilgrims. Abstain. From fleshly lusts. Which war against the soul. Amen. You got an extra verse in there. It's worth hearing. Peter writes. To a scattered audience. He writes to the pilgrims. Of the dispersion. And he tells them. Do you not know that your earthly experience of separation and of scattering is deceiving you? What's really happening in this life is that you're being gathered together. You're being assembled into a spiritual building. I know it feels like dispersion. I know it feels like the. A scattering. This is easily applied to First RP's experience, right? How many of you live in Cambridge? I know it feels scattered. I know we feel dispersed throughout New England. But here's the reality we're being gathered together, we're being assembled together, but not upon our commitment to the congregation primarily. No, the cornerstone of this building is not the fieldstone that you can find at one of these ends of this building. It is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of our congregation. Christ is the cornerstone of the church of Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom we are being added as living stones. We are the rocks that God is taking and sticking on top of Jesus building up The wall that we call the church. Building up the cathedral we call the body of Christ. It starts with Jesus and it grows up from Jesus. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is our sermon text this morning as we continue through the Egyptian Hillels. We've been through 113 and 114, and this morning, we'll read the 18 verses of Psalm 115. Here again, the word of the Lord. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak; eyes they have, but they do not see; ears they have, but they do not hear; they have noses, but they do not noses they have, sorry, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle; feet they have, but they do not walk; nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless the... I'm sorry, I did that when I was practicing this morning too. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen and amen. On a beautiful summer day, much like this one, probably in the month of August, I brought my high school sweetheart, to the first family reunion. I was introducing Lydia to the Bailey family clan. She met my obnoxious uncle, who insisted on calling her Red, so she called him Baldy. And he turned to me and said, she'll do. When we got ready to go, we were in the breezeway by the front door, and Lydia was packing up her things, and I was packing up my things, and my sweet little grandmother came out the door and down the steps and walked over to me and put her arm around me and said, Noah, we like Lydia. If you guys break up, we'll keep her and you can go. I said, thanks, Grandma. You see, family is something that seems so permanent. It predates us. We didn't choose parents. We didn't choose older siblings, and for the most part, we didn't choose younger siblings. There's something permanent and transcendent about family, and yet it's so fragile, and yet we do come and go. We, we add spouses and grandchildren and children, and we lose parents and siblings. There is an ebb and flow to the family, even as the family feels permanent and transcendent. The reason for this, according to Psalm 115, is because the reality of the family of God is rooted in God. And not in us. That sense of permanence to our family belongs to Jesus. And that sense of impermanence that belongs to us. Is because we are united to Jesus in the family. In other words, the truth of God for us, the good news to encourage our hearts, is that Jesus makes us a family. Jesus makes us His family. And from this truth, we should learn to pray for one another. We should fill our prayers with prayers for one another. You remember in Psalm 113... Because Jesus is our future and He's got it secure, we should fill our prayers with His praises from Psalm 114. Because Jesus is building us a home, a new heavens and a new earth, we should fill our prayers with hallelujah. But now thirdly, because Jesus is building us a family, making us into a family, we should likewise fill our prayers with His praises, with hallelujah, and with one another's needs. We should pray for one another. Let's look at the psalm together. Notice in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist begins by addressing what is the cornerstone of a family. What makes God's family God's? Verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. The fundamental feature of Egyptian Hallels is that they are psalms that celebrate God's salvation by saying hallelujah, praise the Lord. The psalmist here begins not with the word hallelujah, praise the Lord, but begins with the necessary inversion. Not to us, O Lord, give glory, but to you. Don't praise the church, praise God. Now, this grows out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is standing on the plains of Moab with the second generation. Their parents have all perished in the wilderness. They are the new church, the new Israel, the new generation. They are on the shores of the Jordan River, and they are going to cross over and under Joshua, not Moses, conquer the land of Canaan. And as they embrace this season of transition, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now remember children, he didn't bring you out of Egypt because you were so mighty and glorious and good. And he didn't carry you safely through the Red Sea because you were so holy and righteous and godly. And he didn't preserve you in the wilderness and from all the Amalekites who attacked you. Because you were so numerous and wealthy and powerful. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says exactly what Psalm 115 verse 1 says. He says, he did it because he loved you. Because he loves you. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name give glory. The foundation of God's family is that it exists to glorify and enjoy God forever. The family of God is not rooted in the experiences of God's goodness and blessing alone, but in an intense desire to glorify God for His blessings. The ambition of God's family is to glorify His name. This is explained in the following lines, because of your mercy, because of your truth. That is to say that God's name is a merciful name. God's name is a true name. When God first came to Israel in Exodus, he visits Moses at the burning bush, and he gives them, through Moses, a name. Yahweh. The name that means, I am. But more appropriately, it means, I am here. I am with you. This true and merciful name highlights the proximity of God the immediacy of God, the attentiveness of God, the affection of God. But then in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist notes that Gentiles will say of Israel, so where is your God? Now there's a very good reason why Gentiles say this to Israel. Because all Gentiles at this time can tell you where their God is. He has a temple. He has an idol. He has an altar. He can be carried around on somebody's shoulders. So they go to Israel and they say, where is your God? And they go, well, well, he's invisible. And they're like, you mean make-believe? Oh, he's your invisible God. And Israel answers in verse 3 and says, I'll tell you where he is. He's in the heavens. He's ruling over everything. You know why I can't stick him in the box, in the building, in the city? He's too big. He's too glorious. Too majestic. In this way, the psalmist simultaneously unites the transcendence of God with the imminence of God. Those are the big words that show I went to seminary. What I mean is, God is so awesome that he's over everything. But God is also so awesome that he's with us in everything. This is why we glorify his name and not us. For he is an awesome God and he is alone God. Not unto us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. This is the defining characteristic of the family of God. If we as a congregation, One to adopt, own, and practice the reality of our adoption. It begins here. What does it mean to say we are the family of God? It means that our mission and aim in every breath, in every heartbeat, is to glorify and enjoy God. He is first. Let me put it in other terms that may sound familiar to you. It is to have no other gods before him. This is the first commandment applied to the character of the church. Who are we? We are those who glorify and enjoy God. We are His family. This is where we find our identity. But as soon as we adopt this posture, that our relationships to one another, that our community as a congregation has this identity of being the family of God, those who glorify and enjoy Him, guess what we as humans instinctively do? We elevate those relationships in that community to the position of God. There's a a word that the Scripture uses to describe that practice, to confuse the means with the ends, to treat the relationship and the community by which we glorify God with God Himself. It's called idolatry. It's where we take something in the creation meant to help us in our relationship with God and we make it God. And that's why the psalmist in the very next verses, verses 4 through 8, tears down idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. These are the things that we create, the things that we fashion, the things that we make. These relationships are the ones that we work on, the ones in which we do our work, whether in the job or in the home or in this congregation. We live in a community of people in which we work on one another. Here's one of the terrifying realizations that one day pops up in the mind of every young couple. That person sitting next to you at dinner is Jesus's chief instrument of your sanctification. He or she is there to find and point out all your sins. That's your spouse's job. Oh, and it gets better. If you really want to be sanctified, you can have kids. And they'll run around displaying all your sins for you. My friends, this is what God shows us. That the relationships on which we work are really working on us. It is not our works which are so powerful and wonderful. God does not relate to us through silver and gold. God does not relate to us through the work of our hands. Thank God. God relates to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Here's another way to say it. The first commandment is about the wrong God. The second commandment is about the wrong Jesus. The wrong way to relate to God. Idols, the ancient civilizations weren't stupid, were not made simply for false gods. They were also made to falsely represent the true God. Let me give you an illustration, because this psalm is about the Exodus. There is one idolatry that stands out more than any other. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has been gone for 40 days. The people of Israel come to Aaron and they say, this guy Moses ran off and left us. We need a new solution. We need a new Moses. And Aaron goes, all right, give me the gold earrings. And according to Aaron's story, he throws it into the fire and out comes a golden calf. According to Moses' story, Aaron very carefully fashions the thing. So you decide who told the truth, Moses or Aaron. Moses says that he carefully fashions a golden calf and he sticks it up. And all the people celebrate and we go, we have a new Moses. This is the God who has brought you up out of Egypt. It's not a false God. It's a false mediator. It's a false intercessor. It's a false Moses. We know this because the very next sentence, Aaron says to Israel... Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. The name of the golden calf is Yahweh. They've got the right God. They've got the wrong Christ. They are making God in their image. They are making God in their likeness. Instead of the other way around. We do not worship God by what we make. We do not have a relationship with God because of what we do. No, our works have mouths, but they do not speak. Our works have eyes, but they do not see. Our works are without life, without vitality. We can't make things that live. We can't. Well, you know what? We can get dirt. And we can stick seeds in the ground. And we can add water and hope that there's sunshine. But at the end of the day, the only thing that makes that seed into a plant is God. God. Friends, we can take husbands and we can take wives and we can put them together, but there's no babies without God. This is the work of God to give life. The works of our hands don't live. God gives life. And so all who trust in their works become like their works. All those who make them and put their faith in them become as lifeless as their labors. Have you seen this about Boston? The person being described here occupies the sidewalks of our streets Monday through Friday. They wake up thinking about work. They go to bed thinking about work. They fill every hour of every day with work. And they are the most lifeless people I have ever met. They are drained of their vitality. They are without creativity, without vigor, without passion. They are without joy, without thanksgiving and gratitude. All the generosity of life has drained from them because they worship the works of their hands, not Christ. He is the image of God, says the Apostle Paul, the express image of God. If we are to have a relationship with God, it must be in Christ. This is what it means to be the family of God to aim to glorify and enjoy Him, but to do it in Jesus. So that's the theological foundation. How do we do that? How do we as a congregation, how do we as families, pray for one another, become a family whose purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him, but to glorify and enjoy Him in Christ? The rest of the psalm lays out how we do that. Let's begin in verses 9 through 11. Number one. We become Christ's family. Achieving the goal of glorifying and enjoying God by being in Him. By trusting Him to be our help and shield. Notice in verses 9 through 11, there's a repetition of this phrase. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The one variable is the audience who is addressed. Israel. Aaron. And those who fear the Lord. In these three monikers, the psalmist calls out the different categories of temple worship. At the front of the temple, leading in worship, would have been the house of Aaron, the priests offering sacrifices, the Levites offering the sacrifice of praise. In the center of the temple would have been Israel, the worshiping community, those who were circumcised and in the tribes. But outside, standing in the court of the Gentiles, would have been those who fear the Lord. The Gentiles, who were God-fearers. By using all three names, the psalmist sums up the totality of God's people. Everyone. Those who lead in worship, trust the Lord. He is your help and shield. Those who participate in worship... Trust the Lord. He is your help and shield. And you who sit outside on the front porch, trust the Lord. I don't know if anybody's out there right now, but trust the Lord. He is their help and shield. Every single part of the family of God are summoned to a dependence upon God, a faith in God, specifically for help and shield. When the psalmist says, help, We obviously think of aid. We help someone do it. We assist them. But this is a theologically rich, I'm tempted to say in a very pastoral, pun way, it's a theologically pregnant word. It refers back to Eve, who is the first one in the Bible called help. She is Adam's help, the one through whom life will flow. Life from God through their marriage will extend to the utter ends of the earth. We'll get to that in a moment. First, God is our help. That is to say, the giver of life. The maker of life. Israel, Aaron, and those who fear the Lord, the worshiping community, the full family of God, should trust God for their future, for their life, for the next generation. My friends, we're living in a season where the pews are full of little kids and babies. We get to hear them. It's great. It's their worship service. They're not add-ons. It's their church. It's their service. They are part of this family. That's why we got them wet. That's why their parents said promises. They belong to the family. And so they too must be told, little children... Trust God to help you with your future. Trust God to give you life and life abundantly. We as older people must still remember this. That as our life ebbs out of us and we grow weak and brittle and sore, it's okay. He is our help. The fountain of life. Abundant life. Good life. But secondly, He is our shield. What do shields do? This is a metaphor that needs no explanation in David's day. Shields do two important things. You wear a shield, usually on your left arm because you're right-handed in ancient cultures. And if you're not left-right-handed, you're made right-handed. You would wear the shield, and you would go into battle, and the shield has two jobs. Keep the guy on this side alive and absorb the blow from that side. God is our shield. He takes the death we deserve and cannot endure. He absorbs the blow. God is our shield. He hovers over His church, preserving her. By putting together help and shield, the psalmist promises the family of God. There is no such thing as extinction. That's why the Mosaic Law given in the Exodus, is so constantly full with, here's how to keep the family line going. There was a propagation of humanity that was essential to the welfare of the family of God. That they had to go from one to the other. We were talking about this yesterday. The problem with Abraham giving away Sarah is she was the means by which Abraham was going to have the son of promise. He can't give away the fulfillment of the promise. Sarah has to be returned to Abraham. This is the truth that God has laid out for us, my friends. There is no extinction for His church. He is her health and her shield. He gives life to her and He shields that life within her. He extends His family. Is this a promise that each and every pew sitter here gets to enjoy a giant full family? No. Is this a promise that this congregation will still be here in 50 years? No. This is a promise that the family of God will have life as long as there is the earth. This is a promise that the family of God, those who are rooted upon this truth, I glorify and enjoy God those who are united to this reality, Christ is God in the flesh. Those who have embraced this gospel, that family has a help and a shield that makes extinction impossible. This is how we pray for one another. That we adopt a dependence on God for our life. Secondly, we pray for one another by saying to one another, be re- Be mindful that God has been mindful of us. Notice verses 12 and 13. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. Notice the repetition again of the family. He will bless the house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord, both small and great. In these blessings, the psalmist heaps up the reality that the Lord remembers his family. Now, in our culture, remembering someone is a largely intellectual exercise. Did you remember your mother's birthday? Wait, that's not an intellectual exercise. That means you picked up the phone or sent a card, doesn't it? That's exactly what remember means in Hebrew, isn't it? In Hebrew, to say that God remembers us means that God has acted for us. That God has engaged the world and done something on our behalf. He has remembered us and blessed us. Specifically, according to verses 14 and 15... He has blessed us with increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's something going on with these verbs that we need to track down. The Lord has remembered Israel. And He has caused Israel to prosper and to thrive. He has blessed Israel, given her a sufficient portion of all the good things of this life, in order that she might increase her and her children. But notice these verb changes, 12 and 13, will bless, will bless, 14 and 15, may bless, may bless. You can track that through almost all your English translations, except for two little odd birds who take a different approach. One is The Message by Eugene Peterson. I know that gets a lot of currency in NRP Church. And the other is the modern English version, the NEV. You guys haven't heard of that one either, have you? Both of these translations actually adopt, in verses 12 through 15, the same verb tense. He will bless. He will increase. He will bless. They don't turn 14 and 15 into a prayer. There's a reason why those two translations do that. Because that's what the Hebrew does. The verb tenses are assertive. The verb tenses, which are only distinguished by context, not by grammar are intended to communicate a confidence in God and His presence among us. That as we trust the Lord to be our help and shield, we can trust the Lord to remember us, to increase us, to bless us with what we need in order to be increased. There are two important applications of this. The first is that He is promising the church growth on which the church can act. In which the church can expect good things. The church is to exercise a faith in these promises. It's not a mere wishing or wanting. It's a certainty on which we can act. Let me be a little more precise. You can share the gospel with your neighbors. Some of them will get converted. You can invite people to church. Some of them will come. I know it's it's really hard to believe. Especially when it hasn't happened much. And we begin to doubt. And we begin to doubt. And Jesus whispers to us this morning. Are you going to believe what I tell you? Or what you see? He has promised to add to his church. He has promised to bless his church. And to build up his family. To add generation upon generation. And this becomes the important point my friends. He doesn't promise to make every single generation that has ever lived. The most prosperous that has ever been. The church may wax and wane. It may grow and it may shrink. Have we not seen that here in this family of God? Have we not seen that in our congregation, in our presbytery, in our denomination? Have we not seen that in the Christian church in America? He is promising here a growth by which we live on and on in this world. He is our help and our shield so that the church might survive, endure, and thrive, and prosper. Not every single congregation. Not every single denomination. And not every single generation. But that we would increase and endure. That we would be blessed of Him. This illustration came through in the Exodus as well. There's this great census. Do you guys remember Numbers Have you guys looked at numbers really closely? There's something really important that happens in the book of Numbers. At the beginning, they take a census. And they get a total. This is how many people are in the nation of Israel that came up out of Egypt. I don't know how far it is. Four fifths of the way through the book of Numbers. There's a second census. And it counts the second generation. Those who grew up in the wilderness and whose parents perished in the wilderness... Do you know what the delta is? What the difference is between the first generation and the second? 1,200 people. Forty years, these people have wandered in the wilderness, living on quail and manna and water from rocks. And they have a net loss of 1,200 people. It's statistically irrelevant when you're talking about millions. God preserves his people. He has preserved this congregation. He has preserved His family. He will preserve His family. From generation to generation, He will be worshipped on the earth, but not just the earth. In the final portion, verses 16 through 18, the psalmist says, The heaven, even the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the children of men. By this, the psalmist means that the Lord is reigning over all and has entrusted the filling of the earth. And the shepherding of the earth, the creation mandate, Genesis 1, to humanity. That we should be fruitful and multiply, not merely in biology, but also in spirituality. That the great commandment should be followed. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the right. The cultural mandate should be followed by the Great Commission. That's what I'm trying to say. That we see in Christ, Matthew 28, that Christ has commanded us to make disciples. Ultimately, why do we baptize children? Because they are disciples. We disciple them. And Matthew 28 says, baptize disciples. We are to make disciples of all nations. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth is to be filled with humans. We are to populate, but not just with humans. With worshiping humans. With the family of God who make it their aim to worship and glorify Him. Reason for this is in verse 17. The dead do not praise God, nor those who go down into silence. By this, the psalmist means that those who exit the earth are no longer part of the worshiping community. My friends, if our congregations consist exclusively and entirely of those who worship in this generation and none of the next generation, the church will be extinct. And this is what God has promised will not happen he will be worshiped there will be a people to say hallelujah a people of his family who will be reunited in christ and out of the riches of his gospel will cry out hallelujah and so the dead will go down they will empty the pew and their children and their grandchildren will take their place this is true of the church This is true of each and every one of us in the church, whether we give birth or not, whether we foster or adopt or not, because this is the family into which we were adopted. And this family has a future. This family has children and grandchildren. The question is, what will we do with them? How will we care for them? How will we attend to them? In verse 18, the psalmist says, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There's a terrific little syllogism in verses 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, but we will bless the Lord. Logical conclusion? We don't die. This is the truth that Jesus is making of us a family. A family that will always have a presence here on earth. A family that will be preserved in order to praise the Lord. A family that will always occupy space in creation in order to cry out, Hallelujah. But sweeter still is this. Every single hallelujah singer we have lost is still singing hallelujah. Because the church from here has gone to glory and keeps singing. This is the riches of the family of God. There is a grumpy old Scott. He's one of my favorite theologians. He was doing a wedding. And because he's a grumpy old Scott, He preached on the proverb, there is always a thing that begins in happiness and ends in sorrow. That was his wedding text. And as he preached this sermon to this young couple, he said, all marriages end in sorrow. Isn't another way. In fact, he turned to his audience, all relationships end in sorrow. There isn't another way. And then he gave him the gospel. Accept the relationships that are rooted in Christ. When we pray for our families, we need to remember that the family that we are in is the family of God. United to Him in Christ. The family that matters is the family we cannot lose. You will bury your dead. You will lose your loved ones. You will break each other's hearts. You will ruin your relationships. You will hurt your community. But you cannot lose a family who's founded on Christ. The cornerstone. Psalm 115 is teaching us to pray out of the families of this earth into the family of heaven. Teaching us to pray for our family with eternal eyes, with spiritual reality. To pray that we would depend upon God and His blessing in order to know the eternality of Christ. Beloved, Jesus is making us a family. So let's pray for one another. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we are a family in Christ. We give you thanks for the little ones we hear here in worship. And for the reminder that this is their church, their service. They are heirs to this We give you thanks that we must become like them, dependent, believing, that like little children we must receive from God our identity. We must receive from you our grace, our righteousness, our goodness. Oh God, we give you thanks that you have united us to Christ and to you as our Father. And pray now that we would live out that union with gratitude and with grace. Praying for one another, loving one another, blessing one another as you have blessed us. We give you thanks for these things and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.